Well, special welcome if you are just joining us uh, for the first time. We have been working through the book of Acts, and uh, we started in the fall, and uh, we have picked it up in the new year, and we are getting there. We are in Acts chapter 22. We ended last week with a cliffhanger. Uh, The apostle Paul was dragged before a mob in the temple in Jerusalem, and they were attempting to kill him, and... uh, The Roman soldiers intervened, threw Paul up on their shoulders, carried him over the crowd trying to get at him, got him safely up onto the platform, and Paul asks, can I address the crowd? And that's where we laughed at last week. And uh, as I was studying it this week, it really reminded me, this is a courtroom drama scene. Uh, There, Paul actually calls it, he says, I'm giving my defense And I don't know about you, but I can't think of courtroom dramas without thinking of John Grisham. And uh, John Grisham is probably one of the most successful popular fiction writers alive today. Uh, He had uh, an 11-year career as a lawyer, and so all of his novels are about drama and courtroom and lawyers and uh, all the exciting things that happen. And uh, I looked it up, 37 novels. Oh my goodness, 10 of them have been made into movies. The guy has a net worth of over $220 million. Uh, What you may not know, though, about John Grisham is he is also a committed Christian believer. He's a follower of Jesus. And uh, he has actually gone on a missions trip himself. He's very generous to the church that he attends, to other Christian organizations. And he even paid $3.5 million dollars to have a little league baseball facility uh, built for kids in the city where he lives. So, pretty cool guy, and uh, has been generous with what God has blessed him with. And all of those experiences kind of came together in his 1999 novel, The Testament. And uh, if you haven't read this, it's a, it's a great read. It starts like this. Down to the last day, even the last hour now, My name is Troy Philan, and I'm an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I'm ready for the the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada, copper in Montana, coffee in Kenya, coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, natural gas in Texas, crude oil in Indonesia, and steel in China. The money is the root of all my misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six who are still alive, and doing all they can to torment me. That's a great line. That's pretty funny. To the best of my knowledge, I fathered all seven and buried one. I should say his mother buried him. I was out of the country. I am estranged from all the wives and the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide the money. The family shows up and he signs a copy of his will. Uh, The lawyers are present and it divides the assets kind of equally among all these uh, kids and grandkids. The family leaves and the next day he calls in the lead attorney, two junior lawyers in in the firm he employs. He also has three top tier psychologists present. And the psychologists examine him, determine he is of sane mind, he's not crazy. And uh, then he pulls out his brand new will that he had personally written. 
And he agrees to pay off the debts for his kids and grandkids, but nothing more. He doesn't give them one penny more. He just gets them back to zero. And he actually gives the lion's share of his $11 billion to a daughter that no one knew about. She's a missionary in the Pantanal jungle along the Brazil-Bolivia border. And then Troy Folan, he is 97 years old. He surprises everyone by getting up from his chair and running to the balcony and he leaps off the 14th story balcony and falls all the way to the ground. With Troy's death, his last will and testament is sealed. No one, it cannot be changed. Well, as you can imagine, the family goes absolutely ballistic. They try to contest the will on the grounds that the old man was insane. Uh, the viciousness and the craziness with which the family tries to argue their case reminded me of how the Pharisees and the zealous Jewish leaders behave in our courtroom scene today in Acts 22. We're going to dive in and examine this courtroom drama for ourselves. Well, right at the beginning of chapter 22, Paul does some smart things. This is how he begins. He said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now, Paul has done two smart things here. He's identified himself with his fellow Jewish people. He calls them brothers and fathers. He's saying, I am part of your family. We are all one family here today. And then the second thing he does is he switches languages. He would have been speaking to the Roman guard in Greek. But then he switches to Aramaic, the language of his people. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. And I read a scholar this week who said, let me put it in Western terms that you can kind of understand. He said, imagine an audience of Welsh or Irish nationalists about to be addressed by someone whom they regarded as a traitor to the national cause, suddenly realized that he was speaking to them, not in the hated language of English passed down from the Saxons, but rather their own native Welsh and Irish Gaelic. Such a gesture would calm the crowd and cause at least a temporary showing of goodwill. That's exactly what Paul is doing. By switching to Aramaic, the crowd's like, oh, He's speaking our language. So they at least agree to give him a hearing. Now, Paul gives an amazing, brilliant speech here. He honestly and accurately recounts his past. Paul, then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Now, as modern Christians, we read that and say, oh, okay, Paul studied in Jerusalem. Isn't that nice? Paul was in a small group Bible study for years and attended lots of adult Sunday school classes. That is such a great slide. Candace killed that. In actual fact, the, Paul, the training Paul was, received was so rigorous. It would be the equivalent today of having a Ph.D., in systematic theology. Paul had an unbelievably brilliant and quick mind, and God used all of that natural ability and all of his training for God's purposes. 
Well, Paul continues his conversion story, showing this crowd how he used to sympathize with their feelings and zealous anger towards these early followers of Jesus. He says, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And the crowd at this point would be saying, yeah, well, these Christians are destroying our culture and our traditions, and and so many Jews are, are becoming followers of Jesus. They're believing this nonsense. Sorry somebody had to die, but serves them right. That would be kind of the feelings they are talking about. And then Paul gets to the amazing moment, his dramatic 180-degree turnaround, his conversion moment. He says, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Yeah, we'll stop there. Perfect. This is the heart of Paul's dramatic conversion. If you read the account in Acts 9, this is kind of about almost exactly the same, 98% the same. But Paul adds in the interesting deal that, detail that it happened at noon. You know what? That removes the doubt from anyone's skeptical mind that this was somehow a dream of Paul's. That he was having a dream at night and he kind of just dreamed this. It didn't really happen. No, this is dead noon, bright sunshine. He's got tons of people around him. This was a very public event. And Jesus questioned to Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It turns Paul's life upside down. His mind would have been racing, thinking, wait, what? I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was making God happy. Now I find out I've been persecuting the Messiah, the Son of God? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. John Calvin, the great 16th century Protestant reformer, comments on this verse. He says, Nothing sweeter can be imagined for soothing the bitterness of persecution than hearing that the Son of God suffers not only with us, but in us. So Paul is literally knocked to the ground. He is blinded by the light. He is knocked right off of his horse. It's a symbol. Oh, there we go. See, we have to have a little soundtrack. Blinded by the light. Wrapped up like a douche. Another owner in the night. Blinded by the light. Wrapped up like a douche. Another owner in the night. You know, I've kind of always wondered, why was Paul blinded by the light? Why did he have to spend three days in total blindness? And as I thought about it, I think the main reason was, it was such an exhilarating, incredible, life-stopping moment. If 
it had instantly, if, if the vision of Jesus had disappeared, if Paul had been able to see if everything had gone back to normal, I don't think he, I think he might have doubted. I think he might have thought, whoa, my word, did that really happen? It's all disappeared, it's all gone. But the fact that he was blind for three days gave him a lot of time to contemplate and think and realize that his whole life was turned upside down. He did not imagine it. He did not hallucinate it. His blindness was the proof. Now, Paul finishes this brief testimony of his conversion by telling about how a Christian man named Ananias came and prayed, and God restored Paul's sight after three days. I've entitled this sermon, To Be Human is to Be a Story. I stole that line from the late Professor Stanley Grenz, and I believe he's absolutely correct. Every single one of us, every human being on planet Earth has a story. And when our story is interrupted by Jesus, like it was for Paul, then I think we, just like Paul, need to share our story. When's the last time you shared your story of coming to faith with someone? You know, if you tell your story to someone who is already a believer, it could be a huge encouragement to them. They need to hear it. If you tell your story to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, then the Holy Spirit of God will use it to make them think and ponder. As I tell everyone in this church who gets baptized and I prepare them for baptism, I say, you know, people can argue about whether God exists, the Bible's legit, all these different aspects of faith. The one thing they can't argue with is your story. Because that's God's working in your life. No one can contradict it. That's your personal experience. So that's our first challenge from our sermon today. Tell your faith story to someone this week. Seriously, do it. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah, whatever, Darren. I don't have time. I'm not doing that. Seriously, do it. I'm challenging you to do that this week. Tell it to someone. You know what? It will actually do your own soul some real good. All right. Paul faithfully tells the story, and he knows that he is about to get to a part that the crowd is not going to like. But he bravely doesn't shy away, doesn't water it down. He charges right in. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying at the temple. I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from, from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they shouted, raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. 
crazy. So Paul has a vision, a second vision of Jesus at the temple. And Jesus tells Paul that a large chunk of the population will not listen to his testimony. Paul pushes back a little bit saying, but, but Lord, they, they see the difference in me. Lord, they, they have to be convinced. You caused an absolute 180 degree turnaround in my life. I used to be a murderer of Christ's followers, and now I'm following you with my whole heart. Paul's essentially saying, how can my testimony not be convincing? But Jesus says, no, they're not going to accept your testimony. So Jesus commands Paul to go to preach and teach and plant churches amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Well, as soon as Paul relates that one sentence, the crowd absolutely loses their mind. They go ballistic. Now, if this was truly a fair kind of trial for Paul, if it was a truly a sincere religious investigation, a dialogue, they would push back, ask questions, demand proof of what Paul was saying. But they don't at all. All they need to hear is the unthinkable suggestion that God is interested in saving anyone outside of their nation and they absolutely lose their minds. As my friend Steve says, they go totally bobo. Ah, such a good phrase. Bobo. A bunch of things are happening here at the exact same moment. Number one, the Jewish people resented the Romans who were in charge. They were in charge of their country by force. And they are taking the tax money away from the people. Now, our government in Canada collects our taxes and builds hospitals, roads, parks, bridges, etc., some of you are cynically laughing. Let's say our government takes the majority of our tax money and does stuff for our country. That was not the case with Rome at all. The taxes collected in the provinces all funneled back to Rome itself to pay the army, the senate, all this kind of stuff. And so that left the people in these outlying provinces really angry because they just had to pay these taxes over and over and over again. I got no benefit. The Jewish people, number two, also felt like they were a little small nation surrounded by godless pagans and they were in danger of being swallowed up, losing their culture, losing their identity as a nation. It'd be gone forever. So they are actively resisting the bigger culture around them. The third factor is that Israel and Judah, 400 years before, were punished by God for their waywardness, their idolatry, their disobedience, their unfaithfulness, for breaking God's covenant. And they had decided to live in all kinds of anti-God ways. And so number three, the whole nation was banished into exile. Now that they've been back in the land for 400 years, they are desperate for that not to happen again. And so they have tightened up their religiosity. They figure... The best way not to go into exile again is to keep every rule. And in fact, we're not just going to keep the rules. We're going to create some more rules around those and not break those. Then we'll never break the ones that God told us to inside. So they become very legalistic in their religious practice. Now, all three of those streams combined when they hear that Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles and their anger erupts. They want to kill Paul. Literally to rid the earth of him. 
Now, what all that reveals about the zealous crowd was that really the issue was way more about nationalism, the safety, growth, pride of their ethnic nation of people, than it was God's mission to redeem a lost, hurting, and broken world back to himself. God, many years before in Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6, had laid out his original mission for the nation of Israel. He said, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So, did they do it? No. They did it in small little spurts and starts, but overall, they failed in their mission. All these years later, Jesus comes, he lives, teaches, dies, is resurrected, and when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus leaves behind his body on earth, the church. And God reissues the exact same mission, but this time to the church, made up of both Jews and non-Jews together. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You can hear the exact same words. God's special possession. You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now here's the amazing church, truth. The church isn't anti-Jewish or somehow forgetting about God's original chosen people. The church is actually designed to be inclusive of both, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul would eventually be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this amazing promise in the book of Romans chapter 11. So it says, again I asked, did they, meaning the Jewish people, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and now their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? You see, it's an amazing promise. It's saying that one day we will see a large number of ethnic Jews embrace Jesus as the Messiah. There's lots of ministries around the world dedicated this. They've seen fruit over the past 40 years. But I love that promise. How greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Well, that brings us to our third and final section of verses. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. Sorry, verses 25 to 30. Chapter 22. Here we go. As they stretch... Okay, sorry, we'll back up. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. 
The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, so the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Well, Paul certainly has a flair for the dramatic. He waits until the absolute last second. They've got him tied up, stretched out. They're ready with the whips and the rods. They're going to beat him and flog him. And he very calmly says, Excuse me, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And the soldier's like, What? Stop. Everyone, stop. He says, I got to run and get the commander. Now, we learn in the next chapter, in chapter 23, the commander's name. His name was Claudius Lysias. Now, he looks at Paul. Paul is going to be looking pretty rough at this point. Probably his clothes are torn. He's been beaten and manhandled by the mob. He's been thrown up on shoulders of the soldiers. Paul is probably not looking his best. And Claudius looks at him and said, I had to pay a huge amount of money for my citizenship. The implication kind of being, wow, you're looking pretty rough. Can anybody buy a citizenship these days? How much did yours cost? Now, scholars have determined that this was common practice for a man who bought his citizenship to take on the first name, as his first name, the name of whatever Caesar was in power during that time. So this man's name is Clodius. So he would have been buying his citizenship under the reign of Caesar Claudius. Now, Paul surprises him and says, well, I didn't have to buy my citizenship. I was born a Roman citizen. Now, how did you get to be born a Roman citizen when Paul was from a Jewish family? Bible scholar F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, this means that Paul's father had been a Roman citizen before him. How the citizenship was originally acquired by one of Paul's ancestors, we are not told. But analogy would suggest that it was for valuable services rendered to a Roman general or administrator in the southeastern part of Asia Minor, perhaps to Pompeii in 64 BC. So here's the point. However God did this, however God in his sovereignty arranged For Paul's grandfather or father to obtain Roman citizenship, the reason it all happened is is for Paul. This knowledge that Paul is a Roman citizen has already, in the book of Acts, got him a public apology and a safe conduct out of the city of Philippi. Now it saves him from a severe beating. And we will see in Acts 25 that because Paul's a Roman citizen, he can actually appeal all the way to the top to Caesar himself. And that's what we will see sends Paul eventually to the city of Rome. So God, in his infinite wisdom, was working generations before to ensure that Paul's family were Roman citizens. And I want to ask you a question this morning. When you stop and think about your own family, your own ancestors, your own family line, 
When you stop and look at it, can you see God at work in the generations of the past leading up to your life? Has God in his infinite wisdom allowed things to happen so that his purposes could be accomplished in you? Maybe God's ultimate point is to accomplish his purposes through your children or your nieces or your nephews or your grandchildren. Is that an amazing thought? I want you to ponder that question as you go through this week. Here's a picture of my, my grandpa, James Phillips, on my dad's side. I think we have a picture. Pretty sure we have a picture. That is not my dad, but he's a, probably a good guy. Or my grandpa. Anyways, you can trust me. My grandpa Jim was a great guy. And I actually got to read some of his uh, story he had typed up before he died. He was born in Kent, England, and the family came over. He was five years old. They moved to Machosan. Uh, rough, tough, pioneering kind of situation and uh, never had enough food, all this kind of stuff. And by age 15, my grandpa Jim uh, went to work in a logging camp. The father had left the family and he was sending home money to support his brothers and sisters and his mom. Pretty amazing. And as I read the whole story, I was thinking, wow, isn't it amazing to see God preserving and working in past generations, preparing the descendants to fulfill God's purposes. Pretty cool thought. All right, well, we started with John Grisham's book, The Testament. You've been dying to know the ending. You're like, Darren, what happened to the 11 billion? Who got it? What's going on here? So the law firm appointed one of its lawyers, Nate. Now, Nate's quite a character. He's a recovering alcoholic. He's an amazing lawyer, but he keeps falling off the wagon. And so he is kind of at the end of his rope. And they say to him, Nate, you're the guy we want to go to the jungles of Brazil and find Rachel Lane, this missionary. And he's got nothing else to lose. Okay, he goes. He's totally jaded. He's kind of giving up on life. And it takes him a week and a half of planes seaplanes, riverboats, hiking, finally he meets Rachel Lane. She turns out to be this amazing, godly, kind, compassionate woman who turns out has little to no interest in having the 11 billion for herself. And Nate keeps trying to say, no, but you're crazy. Wait, just, just sign here, 11 billion can be yours. And she says, what would I use it for? God's given me everything I need. I'm very content here. I've been with this tribe for 24 years. I love the people. They love me. Nate just can't understand this. He just can't figure it out. It, it flips everything he's known in life on, on its head. And he ends up staying three and a half weeks in the, in the tribe. They give him a hut. He gets to know Rachel. He is so impacted by this godly woman. He, at one point, contracts dengue fever. They have to take him to the hospital in, this, in the city. He recovers. And then he has to go back to the States. And the whole trial happens, all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, the kids uh, put up a pathetic argument. Their lawyers are terrible. And the law firm just kind of shreds them. And in the end, they're all like, okay, okay, we'll take a settlement. And so they offer him $50 million for the whole crew and they say, okay, yes, yes, we'll take it. And so now the, the lion's share of the rest 
goes to Rachel. Nate flies back to the Brazilian jungle with the good news and finds out that Rachel has actually tragically passed away. After faithfully serving the Lord for 24 and a half years, she finally caught malaria and passed away. And the chief is explaining this. He shows Nate the grave. And then he says, she left this for you. And he brings out an envelope. Rachel had gone to the city, had found two lawyers, had done up a holographic will. They notarized it, stamped it. And she has appointed Nate as the executor of the estate. And for the rest of his life, this now former alcoholic given a new chance at life has the amazing privilege of quietly dispersing almost $11 billion to Christian charities, non-Christian charities. His job is to research and make sure the money does the maximum good that it could do. And you know what? I thought, isn't that a striking parallel to Acts 22? It appears that God had been working through the Philane family, through that empire, generations before, to ensure his purposes. Just like Paul's family, God had allowed them to become Roman citizens at some point in the past so that God's amazing purposes could be fulfilled in the Apostle Paul. Hey, who knows? Maybe John Grisham read Acts 22 before he sat down to read that book. Fernando, come and pray for us. Let's pray. Uh, before, I just want to let you know that this is uh, an adaptation of one of uh, uh, Augustine of Hippo's uh, prayers in the fourth century. So, and I was uh, when I was writing this, I was thinking like, what a blessing just to have the opportunity to to see 